0: Hey, this is Aaron Carnes. We started this podcast in 2021 to promote my book, In Defense of Ska. Since then, the podcast has grown into its own thing. I've been working on an expanded second edition. I interviewed new people, edited every chapter, and there's a new final chapter, 30,000 new words. The expanded second edition of In Defense of Ska will be released on October 29th, 2024. Can you do something for me? Pre-order it right now at clashbooks.com under the books tab. The more copies it sells in advance, the more it'll get people to support Ska music. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba. In 2007, Fallout Boy's third album, Infinity on High, debuted at number one on the Billboard charts. Four of the songs charted on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, and it sold over 2.4 million copies in the U.S. Though the band are often associated with the mid-2000s emo revival, they ended up cracking the pop market in a significant way. Our guest today is Fall Out singer Patrick Stump, who it turns out is a huge fan of ska. Back in the 90s, Patrick didn't just casually listen to mainstream ska bands off the radio. He was deeply involved in the scene. Ska was his music, and he considered himself a ska fan first and foremost. Over the years, his deep love for ska
1: has somehow escaped the attention of the media. That is, until now. Who would have thought the singer of Fall Out Boy was so into ska? I had zero idea. I know that we talked to Brian... And Brian had brought up the Animal Chin connection, but I was completely unprepared for this.
0: Yeah, Brian didn't prepare us to the extent of which he was a Ska fan. It was more just like, oh, he's a big Animal Chin fan. No, it turns out he's a big Ska fan.
1: Yeah. We talked about every avenue of Ska, all the way from traditional through third wave. And I feel like no stone was left unturned
0: couple hours before this interview, you sent us a uh, recording of yourself playing trombone over uh, sellout.
2: <laughs> that was freshly recorded. I recorded all of that.
0: You recorded all of it. Okay. Oh, so Aaron was right. But yeah. we Adam and I had a debate about whether that was you playing on top of the original recording or whether you did everything. And yeah, I thought you did everything. That's convincing.
2: That's great. No, that was me. I That was all me. That's amazing.
0: <laughs> when did you do that? You did that just recently?
2: No, I did that kind of at the beginning of the pandemic. So I've been scoring. I've been doing film scoring for the past five years. And long story, short I'm not a great instrumentalist at a lot of instruments but no one seems to mind you know so I kind of I got emboldened where I'm like screw it I'll play trombone too and I had and I I took like three lessons when I was like 12 I hadn't you know touched it since then and uh so that was my that was day one of of trombone as an adult
1: Sounds convincingly good. (laughs) I was was like, for sure, you were like a marching band, like middle school kid or something.
2: No, I was. No, man, I was such a jerk about it. And I had seen some interview with The Clash and they were talking about how, you know, they purposely didn't want to learn their instruments. And I was like, yeah, man, like, that's what I want to do. And so I did that all throughout high school. And in retrospect, now, like I said, I've been film scoring and like, you know, scores you're dealing with. Tons and tons of written music, and you're like, yeah, it would have been nice if I paid attention in school. (laughs) Like, maybe a little bit.
1: I feel like I read a a similar article with Sonic Youth saying, like, man, don't learn how to play your guitar, just like rub it against things. Yeah, there's some value to that, but I mean, it's also,
2: you know, then you find yourself in a situation where you know people are talking about the key and you know, and walking bass lines, and you know, whatever time signature changes, rhythm, you know, rhythm subdivisions and polyrhythms and stuff, and you're like, yeah, yeah.
1: It sounds cool, you know, <laughs> whatever. I have a random music question for you. Yes. The, the, like the fast punk beat, do that, do that, do that, do that. What do you call that? Um, I guess
2: I always associated it with fat records. That was like the first time I heard it. And obviously the older I got, the more I'm like, oh, well, I mean, it's associated with lots of different, you know, sub of punk, you know, a lot of people associate it with like the discord thing or whatever. So yeah, for me, it was a fat records beat. Cause that was the, that was the first place that I got to know it, you know?
1: Yeah. I'm always just interested to see how different people describe that beat. Yes, everyone has the completely different one. I agree. I always call it the money beat because that's what yeah. our drummer called it. So <laughs> I like that. There you go. Yeah. We we
2: tried that once. We tried it on one record, and I was pretty amped about it. And that song didn't do, you know, no one really latched onto it. So I was like, okay. But, but I, I had a blast.
0: Didn't you start out on drums uh, as a musician?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I was a drummer first, uh, which back to the kind of, you know, the origins of me getting to play other instruments and kind of teaching myself. In high school, it was really easy to get away with, you know, just doing everything by ear because as a drummer, you don't, you know, you can kind of figure that out. You kind of use your instincts. But my dad was a folk singer and, well, is a folk singer. And so I kind of knew some guitar and stuff like that just just by osmosis. In terms of seriously playing an instrument, I was was a drummer up until like the day that Fall Out Boy played live because like we didn't we just couldn't find a singer, really. And it was one of those things, too, where we had we had gone through a few guitar players and, you know, trying to find, you know, we, you know, we were like a five piece and we'd gone through a few guitar players and me just knowing what I knew from my dad and stuff, I ended up being about as good as like, you know, the guy that we'd have for like two days for like two weeks or something, you know, like I was about as competent as as a player who hadn't played these songs very much. And so I was like, Eventually, I just became a guitar player and branched off into other stuff. Like I said, the Clash, I read this Clash article and that totally changed and ruined my life because I, I insisted on just, you know, teaching myself everything. And I, you know, I didn't have tabs or anything. I just I made myself figure it all out. And in retrospect, I'm like, it would have been cool to know what people are talking about. Like, that would be great.
0: What was it about drums that drew you to playing them? as an instrument? I don't know.
2: It was always, it was just the first thing that I loved. I just, I just instantly, I don't remember a time where I didn't want to play drums. You know, that was the first, it was my first love. It was my first relationship with an instrument. And I remember we had these big buckets of Legos when I was a kid, my brother and I, my brother's a like engineer is uh, like a IT guy. He's like, brilliant and so he would dump out all the legos and build these like elaborate crazy things i mean j- i just structurally insane things and i would take the buckets, the now empty buckets and you know beat on them my, my dad had a pair of sticks sitting around somewhere and so i would i would play on the buckets and I, I must have been about i don't know i was probably like eight or nine or something and i did it to everything i did it to you know I mean, a lot of sky. Actually, that's the—that's kind of what you know what brings me here. So,
1: yeah. What type of stuff were you listening to? You know,
2: there's that period where you're a kid and you start to establish who you are separately from your parents. You know, because like. Up to a certain point, you just listen to whatever your parents listen to. My brother had a girlfriend who had had some ska records. She, there was a Dancehall Crasher. The, you know, that first Dancehall Crasher's one with the, like, uh, Charlie Brown cover. Yeah, the uh,
0: the old record, yeah. The
2: old record, yeah. So she had it when it was, like, a cassette, and it was, like, the current record, I think. And um, she had that, and she had a Mustard Plug record. And so that was my first exposure to that. and. And I was like, this is awesome and I got to find this. And then, you know, you're armed with what you're armed with. So I'm this little kid trying to go to like Best Buy in the early 90s. It's not like you're finding those records there. So I kind of had to make do with whatever was there. Eventually, it was like, you know, Rancid and Goldfinger and that kind of stuff. You could go to a store and find those records before I, before I really understood that there were like, you know, independent record stores. And, you know, but that was kind of like my... Entry point and like no doubt was obviously huge suddenly like right around then I would get those records and look at all their thanks and then try you know like the the thank yous and then I would I would try and track down everyone that they thanked on records you know so like that's how I got into Hepcat because the saxophone player for Hepcat played on something God what did he play on he played on something you know some he was a guest on something else that kind of stuff and so I kind of branched out from there into Just lots and lots and lots of ska. But that was my first, you know, this is my music kind of thing.
1: Do you remember the first ska show you went to?
2: Uh, Real Big Fish. It was Real Big Fish and Kara's Flowers, who became Maroon 5 at the uh, House of Blues in Chicago.
0: What do you remember about that show? Anything specific?
2: So we were talking about this before we started recording, but I'm like a super, super homebody. You know, I'm really not. I'm kind of like, uh, I think, agoraphobic or something. I don't know what the deal is, you know. But so it took a lot for me. To, I talked my sister into taking me to the show. And, you know, I stood in the back, but not really by the merch table, just kind of like there was a little bit of a space where there was no one there. And I kind of just stood there with my, you know, I had... um these like two-tone like wingtip doc martins you know i like made sure to put those on and everything you know and i stood there and danced by myself and it was the kind of thing where if anyone made even eye contact with me i would have like you know hidden forever and never go you know whatever but (laughs) (laughs) you know in the moment i was very there you know
0: that you felt the comfort to just kind of let loose a little bit yeah
2: yeah and it was um and you know chicago at the time it's weird because I'm sure there are, there are and have been a lot of other big scenes there. But I really, ironically, even though, you know, Fall Out Boy is really associated with, you know, Chicago punk rock scene, I didn't know that many, you know, that many bands. I don't know. I, I didn't at the time know anywhere near as many local bands while we were playing as I did when I was a kid listening to ska because, you know, I mean, it was it was massive. We had first off, we had, you know, Jump Up records. Chuck wren had the radio show and um and so I would listen to that every weekend and I would record it every episode, you know, and so we had that local presence, but then there were also, you know, I mean, Blue Meanies were huge, Hot Stove Jimmy was a big deal. You know, there were there were all these local bands. And I was just obsessed with all of that stuff. You know, I, I just ate it up. Yeah. So it was kind of like there was enough of a community there about Scott in Chicago that like I didn't feel like a total weirdo. You know, going to the Real Big Fish. Show. I felt kinda of bad for Kara's flowers <laughs> playing before playing not decidedly not ska <laughs> before before Real Big Fish.
0: Was there any particular ska drummers or ska albums that you like played along to or kind of learned how to play from? Well,
2: yeah. I mean, that first goldfinger record, I played a lot of that, you know, um here in your bedroom. I mean, just that beginning, um, is very prototypically, you know, nineties ska with the um you know, the cross stick and the, and the busy hi-hat stuff. So that was one. And obviously Rancid was like the coolest thing in the universe when I was a kid, you know, that was just like, it didn't get cooler than that. So, so I played a lot, I played along to a lot of Rancid stuff, but then gradually as a drummer, I got really into traditional ska. I I really liked a lot of the, the hi-hat, you know, the, that, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, that was just kind of a broad, a broad thing, you know, Scatalites and, and yeah, Hepcat was kind of my entry point into a lot of that.
0: How good are you at a traditional ska beat? Pretty good.
2: I would say I'm probably better at that kind of stuff than I am at like metal, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's funny as a drummer, you know, you become kind of a, a specialized tool, you know, it's not like I, I play ska and reggae pretty well because that's what I, that was like my first thing that I played, you know, it's a little bit harder to do, to do the money beat, you know, because I, I, it just didn't come up as much.
1: Was your first band a ska band?
2: Yeah, so my first two bands I I kind of talked other kids into doing ska bands. Weirdly, so I never considered myself a singer or an instrumentalist of any kind other than a drummer, but I I was trying to put together a ska band and no one would play bass or sing. And so um I borrowed a like Steinberger bass from the jazz teacher at my school and we did a Mustard Plug cover at uh at the talent show that year and and i had to sing it and it was so funny because i was so i I was desperately afraid of singing in front of people and i just kind of you know looked down the whole time and didn't move you know but but and you know i'm playing bass for like the first time ever <laughs> you know i kind of made it easy on myself and and it it worked and you know it wasn't a total a total train wreck but yeah my first two bands were ska bands but it's also kind of like you know we didn't it's not like we played shows or anything.
0: Do you remember the name of the Mustard Plug song that you guys played? Yeah, it was Mr. Smiley. Mr. Smiley. What were your two band names? That I don't remember. They weren't ska like pun names, were they?
2: No, they weren't ska pun names. Again, I couldn't talk anybody into that. It was kind of like <laughs> I was kind of I was basically, you know, cuz I was obsessed and really no one else shared my zeal for for it. You know, in the same way, so I could get you know I, there were there were a couple of guys in the jazz band that you know played horns, and I could get them to like show up and stuff, but they weren't really like amped about it
0: so we interviewed Brian Diaz, yeah, so he says that you are a huge animal chin fan
2: yeah, so animal chin was a was another big thing, a big like entry point for me um so I had been i don't really it's funny, you know fallout boy is kind of seen as a rock band you know as a as a pop rock band and it's weird because the that kind of puts you in these weird circles where you know people talk to you about I don't know rock hard rock and stuff and I really didn't have that I didn't have I had punk rock as a I I was really into a lot of the you know the politics of like ska punk and so that that was a thing that kind of helped me over on on a lot of the heavier stuff but it wasn't like if you took that out of it I didn't just love the music enough, you know, you know, nothing against it. It just didn't, it just wasn't my thing as much. And then Animal Chin was amazing because it was kind of a, so all the kids agree that record, it was heavy and like kind of punk rock, but it was also very ska and it was also very musical, really, really, really musical. And that was a, that really grabbed me and kind of pulled me in. And so it's in a lot of ways it was my transitional thing between ska and you know pop punk or whatever you know because i I could shut off the the part of me that's like rock and roll you know it just wasn't my thing as much you know but jamie's just such a good songwriter and and it was just so i don't know i mean yeah it was a big big deal for me for sure
1: there's a song on that album there's like an instrumental ska uh, song called ftdb do you know what that stands for i don't it stands for fuck the decepticons bus (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they were another ska band that I think they toured with animal chin and they had this big purple bus and I guess the guys in animal chin just found these guys repulsive because they had taken like a two liter bottle and cut the bottom off of it and then ran a tube out the door and then they taped it to like the handle like near the door so that you could just pee into that and it would go down the tube out the van while they were driving. Uh. And so they were just like, dude, fuck the Decepticons, bro. That's what that song is. Oh, Van Wars. I remember that stuff. Good stuff. Gross. So, growing up in Chicago, like the Chicago area, were you going to shows at Fireside Bowl then?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, lots of shows at Fireside Bowl. Though, to be entirely honest, I didn't go to that many Ska shows because I was just so scared. I didn't really grow all that much, but I was even smaller then. You know, I was a little guy. And, um, and I was really scared of people and scared of crowds and stuff. So, so it took me a lot to go to shows. Um, and so I would go to a lot of local shows. I saw a lot more local shows than I did, uh, than I, you know, like basement shows, that kind of thing. Um, I didn't start really going to the fireside until I was probably about like a lot of the wave of ska bands kind of ended like a lot. Like I think blue meanies had kind of broken up or petered out by the time I was going to fireside. That kind of stuff. And and uh hot stove Jimmy became cougars.
1: You never saw Animal Chin at Fireside then?
2: I never saw Animal Chin. I never got to see Animal Chin.
1: Never got to see him. Dang.
2: No, I never got to see him. And you know, it, it's it's funny because I've known Jamie for a long time. Cause we actually played um, we played a showcase before we were signed to Field by Ramen. Field by Ramen put us on a showcase at South by Southwest. And it was us in the stereo. And I was just in awe. You know, I was just totally just like, you know, this was like. The Beatles, or something. I was such a big fan of, of of Jamie's stuff. Seeing the stereo and knowing his stuff from Animal Chin, I was just like, oh my God. And he's, he was always very supportive and very cool. So we've talked a lot about Animal Chin, but I never actually got to see him.
1: Oh man. It's weird. Not but. even the, the reunion they did in Minneapolis.
2: No, no, I didn't get to. I, I, I don't, like I said, I don't get out much. Yeah. <laughs> <Stuff> yeah. <laughs> You know, eventually I got into hardcore and I was, I was definitely a mail order kid where I had all the, you know, I had every seven inch, but I didn't, you know, I, I, I went to like a handful of shows, you know, it wasn't until basically I, I was the kind of guy where I had to have a group of friends, like force me to go kind of, you know, so we, so, so I did go to a lot of shows eventually, but it wasn't until it wasn't until like, you know, junior, senior year.
0: Did you find that ska shows were more comfortable or more welcoming than other types of music? Or was that not really the issue?
2: Yeah. yeah ska shows were, were pretty, were pretty rad. So, so that was cool though. One of the things that was, I don't know if this was everywhere or if it was, if it was heightened in Chicago, but we had a lot of like, you know, community center shows and, you know, basement shows and stuff where everyone just had to play together. So you would have like skank and pickle play with like, I don't know. Um, like a death metal band, you know, like really, really wild stuff because there were just, you know, in the suburbs, there wasn't a huge, you know, it wasn't like a huge demand for for just ska shows. So it would just kind of be like general punk rock shows.
1: I mean, I feel like a, a big thing about that whole period was just, it was, you know, every show was a whole bunch of different bands. And yeah, ska, ska sat right alongside hardcore, sat right alongside emo, sat right alongside pop punk. And so you just got all of that in the same show.
2: Yeah. And that's really, you know, how I got exposed to a lot of stuff, how I got exposed to a lot. And, you know, I, I should say, you know, how am I talking about Chicago and not talking about slapstick? I mean, that was huge. I mean, that was everybody, everybody knew slapstick and knew, you know, knew all those records. And so, you know, there were, that was another thing was there were, you would go to shows and there would be like, like honor system and that kind of stuff, bands that were coming out of slapstick. And so that was another kind of way into other kinds of music it was the fact that they you know all those guys started other bands
1: what would be your favorite slapstick offshoot i heard you mention honor system i mean
2: i really loved the early alkaline trio stuff cuz cuz i was i was also kind of exhaustive about asian man so everything that asian man put out i picked up pretty much and so i had seen i had seen an alkaline trio i think it was like a 7 inch or something and i was like i was like okay awesome like it was like it gave me permission to be into this, you know, because because up to that point, I had been really, really very focused on Scott.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's kind of follows Asian man's um, broadening as well. You know, uh, Alkaline Trio
1: and the other like slapstick offshoot bands. Yeah,
2: Tuesday. And I mean, there, and there were so many, too. It's kind of funny.
1: I always feel like it was like blowing on a dandelion, that band breaking up.
2: Yes. Yeah. No, it, It's it, it's really crazy. And I forget sometimes, you know, how many bands had a relationship to, like, like uh, even less than Jake, you know? Like, at some point, like, those guys got everywhere.
1: Indefensive Ska will return in a moment. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ... How people get qualified?
0: We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Back to Animal Chin. In the Midwest, though, were they very popular?
2: It wasn't huge. I had to track that record down. Um, if I really give a lot of credit to uh, Chuck Wren because that radio show was like everything, man. I mean, that was, there were so many records that, that I had never, like even stuff like, even stuff like, you know, everything from, you know, the impossibles to like fishbone to, there were so many different records that I never would have heard, you know, anywhere. And they were really hard to find. So so Animal Chin, actually all the kids agree because he played that record a lot and different and various different songs from it, including that instrumental. I would tape every one, you know, and and it was, I remember I had to go pretty far out. There was some record store in Bannockburn, which is the only place that I could find that CD. But it was it was definitely not easy to to find. And it was funny because then when the band signed to um to Fuel by Ramen, they let us, you know, go through and pick out, you know, some of the back catalog stuff if we wanted any CDs, you know. And there were, I had no idea that Animal Chin had ever done anything on Phil Barrowman. I didn't know they had any other records. I just knew that one record front and back, you know? And so it was, it was really funny. I was like, I was like, oh, there's, there's more. (laughs) They did more stuff. It was, uh, yeah, I really, I really just knew that one record, but it was like my favorite record, you
1: know? Yeah. That 20 minutes from right now EP is awesome. So good. I
2: mean, they're, they're, they're shredders. I, I love that. I love that band. I love that record a lot.
1: I always love Animal
0: Chin, but I uh, hadn't heard, listened to them in a while, and I so like in the last week I've been listening to that. All the
1: kids agree again, so good, still holds up, really good. My old band used to tour with them all the time, really, and so like I've I put down my head in the same spots as them to sleep lots of times. Like one one of my earliest tour memories in '98 was having Andy, the bass player, tell me what to do if if we hit Black Ice. And then literally the next day, hitting Black Ice and spinning our van out. Dang. And just hearing Andy's voice in my head. Yeah, we had, that was our our van accident was the Black Ice. But, you
2: know, it's funny. Andy was in Motion City Soundtrack. And that was how I got into Motion City Soundtrack. Oh, was he? I didn't know that. Yeah, very briefly at the beginning. Oh, wow. And I remember talking to Justin Pierre. I can't remember if he was in it when we, we played with them at a, at, this movie theater in Displays, Yeah. Uh, there, there was a show that we did. It was the first time we played with motion city soundtrack and, and they, um, and I think Andy was still in the band at the time. And I, and I remember, you know, pulling Justin Pierre over and be like, wow, you know, I'm a big animal chin fan. He's like, yeah, cool. You know, it was, it was very like, it was very like, <laughs> I don't, I, you know, I wasn't even sure if he knew what that band was, you know, at the time. You know, so. I mean, he did, he did for sure, but it was just funny. It was like, you know, I was super fanning it.
0: Brian had said that you sometimes sound check with Animal Chin songs.
2: Yeah, he and I will will sound check together with that because I when I'm line checking, you know, he's usually back behind one of the cabinets tuning basses and I spend a lot more time on stage than I probably need to. You know, I I just I goof around and uh actually Andy our drummer and I will be, you know, sometimes Andy and and I and and Brian Diaz and I will play uh Bleed especially. That's, that's just, that's the song. I mean, there, there's a lot of great
1: songs on the record, but that that song's so good. Yeah. Brian had told me it was the, the first song, the sex song off the album.
2: Definitely something that, that Brian and I bonded on is the fact that, you know, because he was in Edna's Goldfish, you know, he was in a, a real ska band. So I, I had had this dream. So there was a band in Chicago called the New Jacks, and I was obsessed with the New Jacks. They were, they were the coolest band in my, like, I loved, I still go back to the, to those demos and stuff. It's funny because, um, the guitar player ended up starting this band called Knockout. And Knockout is is very central to Fall Out Boy's history. Fall Out Boy probably wouldn't be a band without Knockout. But anyway, but his old band was the New Jacks. And and uh, I was so, so into the New Jacks. And, and it was this dream of mine to be anything in the New Jacks because they they'd gone through like 40 people or something, you know <laughs> you know how it goes. And I never got to be one of those people. And it was such a bummer. But you know, so when Brian and I, when we started touring and, you know, he was doing Reunion Show, I remember being like, oh, wow, you were in a real ska band, <laughs> you know, that's <like, laughs> so
1: cool.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask when you learned about Brian's ska past, if you remember.
2: I, I knew him, I like that was what Reunion Show was to me, was, was X Edna's Goldfish, you know, that was the, that was like the thing. So like everything was related to scotomy. me. <laughs>
0: So you knew Brenda's Goldfish back in the day.
2: Yeah, I'm telling you, again, I don't take any credit for this. It wasn't like I was crate digging. I mean, Chuck Wren was exhaustive. And I was like, I was pretty obsessed with that radio show. So, you know, basically every weekend I would, I think it was on the weekends. I can't remember what day it was, but it was once a week. He would have the show. He'd play a bunch of new records. I'd like write them all down, all the ones I liked. And then I would try and find them. And eventually I found, you know, mail order stuff and whatever. And, and he would put out, um, there were some great compilations too. And so that was another way that I would, I would hear a lot of bands through that. But so it was
0: all that stuff. I see. So what was it like when he started working for you then? Were you like a little bit of a fan? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I
2: was, I was nerded out about it. It's funny. Cause he, you know, he's, he's very, um, I think on one level he's, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like talking about your, you know, high school yearbook photo you know but then at the same time it's like you know it's neat that someone cares i think is for him you know i don't want to put words in his mouth but i think it's funny that like i think it's funny to him that i'm like such a big fan.
0: so there was the show one of the edna's goldfish reunion shows that was at like some festival that i think fallout boy played also
2: yeah yeah and i i can't remember what the deal was but I i i didn't get to see it
0: maybe it was other members of the band were there
2: yeah i mean i'm i'm sure I feel like the other guys always manage to, to get out and do things.
0: Do you have like a favorite Edna's Goldfish song?
2: Oh gosh. I just remember the video after I, after YouTube, I remember looking up the video and, and cause I didn't have that record, but I remember, I remember the seeing the video and after knowing Brian and like, he's like a little kid, you know, I mean, he looks like a little kid to me. You know, I remember watching that a few times and he like, you know, he was like, ah, turn that off, you know?
1: I'm surprised by how good that video looks, considering like, I know the story behind them them making it. Like it was, they just like filmed. It. What was the story? I... Brian told us they just like filmed it during a show. It
0: was like a like a little like all day
1: ska festival, and so like guys from Slow Gherkin are in the video.
0: Then the stereo, the guys in the stereo in there, yeah,
1: wild. So the only time I've ever seen your band play, you guys were wedged in between uh, a local band from here called The Matches, and yeah, yeah, room The Matches, and less than Jake. Yep. And uh, it was at the Warfield. Mm-hmm. And so that was my introduction to your band. And I remember thinking it was really weird that your bass player did all the talking and you were the singer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then the only other thing I remember about your set is him climbing on top of the bass amp like three songs in and like jumping off. Yep. And me just being like, damn, that looked like it hurt.
2: Yeah. He, he did get, it. he broke his foot a couple, like once or twice. He, I mean, it was a lot of, that was kind of our thing. I was a drummer and a really, shy person I guess introvert like I talk a lot and really fast in person but I'm very scared of people as a thing you know um and I always have been and so it's like it's weird like I don't necessarily I wouldn't say i have exactly stage fright like I don't mind playing music on a stage like that doesn't freak me out but literally every other thing that you do on stage freaks me out you know if I had to speak in front of people it freaks me out and um, he just naturally always did that. I never wanted to be a singer. It was just, that was, I was the guy that could sing. And I really wanted to write music. And that was kind of the the caveat was, you know, okay, you can you can write songs as long as you sing them. And I was like, okay. Yeah. So he kind of took over a lot of the, you know, front manning stuff without ever singing. And uh, it was great because I got to just focus on on playing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. He would. Yeah, he was always jumping off of stuff and you know breaking guitars, and <laughs> all of that. It was it was the whole thing keeping Brian busy. That was before we had Brian. That was, I think that was probably why we why eventually we had to hire Brian was because it's like we you know
1: somebody's got to actually take care of this stuff. You know, so I don't know about your van accident. So can we hear about that?
2: Oh yeah. So uh, gosh, it was so we had a record. Take this to your grave. It's our first record. And we were going to do, we were going to shoot a video for it. Um, we were driving to Michigan to shoot a video for it for where is your boy? And yeah, we hit some black ice and veered off the, veered off the road and into a, into a couple trees. Um,
0: Whoa.
2: yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing. I mean, it's really incredible because, um, you know, like three of the guys weren't wearing seatbelts cause we, we had, we were in like one of those, um, you know, 15 passenger vans and we would kind of, uh, trade who got to sleep bench, you know? And so three of the guys were on the rotation to sleep on the bench. And so they weren't wearing seatbelts. And I mean, like the tree came in through the window and stuff. I mean, it was like, it was, it was like, and the, and the van was totaled. It, it, it totally collapsed the one side. No one was hurt. Seriously. Everyone had something. you know, like, uh, Pete had some like big gouge out of his calf and Andy had some big cut on his lip and we all had like glass in our hair and that kind of stuff, you know, a lot of like little cuts and nicks and stuff, but everyone was fine. It was amazing. I mean, it was a pretty, it was, it was a pretty serious accident that we just, I have no idea how we lucked out of that. I mean, it was one of those things where like literally the way the van collapsed, if we had been, you know, a couple inches forward or a couple inches behind, somebody would have died for sure. Like like there's no I mean not no way around it. We lost all of our equipment that was in the uh that was in the trailer. The trailer exploded and, you know, uh wrapped around a tree and you know, a lot of the there were shirts, that, you know, our our merch was in the trailer. With, you know, so there's shirts all over the freeway and the highway. It's not not free over there, but uh but uh shirts everywhere and and you know our amplifiers were all busted, Andy just got a new drum kit that we were going to take with us to the video shoot, you know to have you know to kind of show in it and um and that was shattered, so in the same way that you know Pete always was the front man without being the singer, I really around that time we were transitioning into him writing all the words and me writing all the music. And cause we just kind of started to understand that that's who we were, that, you know, I really didn't care as much about the words and he really didn't care as much about the music as long as those things were whatever. And so I had this big binder, like this three ring binder full of every Pete would write me, you know, write lines on a sheet of paper and I collected them all in this three ring binder. And when the van crushed the way one of the the seats like the metal buckled and it totally destroyed that binder um it totally trapped it and like and like shredded it and so it was weird because we that was all the lyrics we had like we had had and that was an interesting thing just as a band you know like all like our entire well of ideas uh got destroyed there too so we had to kind of start from scratch wow
1: that's buff
2: I mean, it's cool. Whatever. I mean,
0: I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're live. <laughs> so glad no one was hurt. Did you have any anxiety about going on tour again after that?
2: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've always been anxious about tour. Um, again, kind of owing to agoraphobia or whatever it is. I can't really figure out, you know, i kind of talked to people about it. And, no, you know, no one really, It. I don't know, could just be stage fright or something. But I was always anxious about touring. It was never my favorite thing because there's just this like, you know like i said i was this kid i was too scared to go to shows so then like you live your life as a, as shows you know it's it's a it's a real big change so i was always scared of it but um i wasn't really scared of the driving thing i wasn't really scared of like the you know van accidents and stuff it's weird in retrospect i'm like you should have been that's that's really crazy but I feel like it's this kind of rite of passage that everybody has, you know, like, oh yeah, that was our van accident, you know, like whatever. Definitely. I feel like
0: every band has that story. Oh, so like it happens. So the chances of it happening again are slim is like the thinking. Yeah,
2: exactly. And you're like, that's not really how that works, but okay. You know, I mean, like you, should still, you should still kind of be careful when you're driving,
1: but you know. Well, And, and in a weird way, like a weird, totally backward way, it, it like legitimizes you as a band.
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I mean, it kind of does. It was kind of like this, you know, it's a, it's a war stories, you know, it's kind of one of those things. Uh, it was a very standard thing. Like, Oh yeah, we, that was ours. Oh, our van accident was th-. But then, you know, then there are bands like I remember this band count the stars we were on tour with them. Um, and then not long after we'd been on tour with them, they had a van accident and like it pretty much, I mean, I, this might be oversimplifying, but it seemed to nearly break up the band because like, you know, a couple of guys were pretty, badly injured and then um you know and then they just financially you know it it really took a toll on them and so it's it's weird because again i probably should have taken it more seriously you know i probably should have been more freaked out but after the smoke clears and everyone's fine and no one's dead i was like cool you know okay
0: Let's let's move on. Going back to Animal Chin really quick. When I heard that you were a fan of Animal Chin, it did actually click because I feel like you can see similarities in your singing and Jamie's singing. Was he an influence on your singing style?
2: Oh yeah, of course. I didn't really know how to sing. It wasn't a thing that I consciously tried to do or thought about or anything. It was kind of a thing that, frankly, I didn't know people couldn't. I didn't know that it was a skill. Then Fall Out Boy kind of started, and I was just showing them songs that I had written. And as part of showing them songs, you know, I mean, I I knew like one bar chord on guitar. So I'm like, you know, kind of really rudimentary playing that while I sang these ideas. And it was funny. They were like, oh, you should sing. And I'm like, really? I, I mean, okay, I got, sure. What do you think of the song? So then when we had to start playing, uh, when we started, you know, playing out, I was, Kind of confronted with like people will consider you a singer now, you have to like think about what that means. you have to think about like what that sounds like so i I really didn't have much to rely on early on, especially, I was looking to Jamie and I had kind of gotten into saves the day, so those two bands it was like try and sing like that i 'll try and sound like them. you know. I did a lot of impersonations as a kid, that was like one of my things you know i would I would do cartoon voices and stuff and So singing wasn't a thing that I did as a serious thing. It was, it was another um, silly voice. You know, it was another impersonation, you know, it it was no different than me doing Elvis Costello or, or, you know, uh, Christopher Walken or something, you know, it was just another voice. And so when I had to do it in front of people, I had to find a voice to do it. in. I couldn't just, I didn't even know what I sounded like as a singer, you know? And so, I was basically impersonating Jamie and impersonating Chris from saves a day, you know, because that was the only thing that I could, I was like, well, these are bands I, I like, I mean, this is what they sing like,
1: you know? <laughs> I mean, you can't really go wrong with those two as your influences. Those are pretty good singers.
2: Well, and that's the thing is that I, I still, you know, I look back on those records and I'm like, yeah, I mean, I was very, you know, kind of hard on your sleeve and they, and they, they both know that, you know, I've talked to, talked to both of them at length about it, about how, you know, how big a deal that was for me but you know i was a drummer and i took drums a lot more personally and seriously but as a singer i for years i mean the band was on mtv and stuff before i before i was like maybe i'm a singer actually you know maybe you know like maybe that's a thing that people that i actually have to start taking seriously because up to that point i was just i just thought of myself as
1: impersonating my heroes you know did you have the misfits of ska 2 comp of course i did. Okay, so you know the you know the Animal Chin song on there Time Out? Yeah, of course. And it has the part the I think it's like the bridge right before the breakdown. Mm-hmm. And so there's like a long vocal, and then Jamie sings really high. Yeah. The first time we played with Animal Chin, he was singing it a octave lower. Of our whole band was standing there like pointing up like no, sing it high. And then so like the next time it came around, he like hit it high, and we all lost our minds. Yeah,
2: it's I mean he he's got such a great voice and such a great tone, you know when he goes really up high like that yeah i mean that, that that compilation that was a huge compilation for me um there were so many rec- so many songs on that i i love that there's a band um absence and that that was like the only oh, yeah thing i ever found of them was that in the advent of youtube i think i tracked down their demo or something you know maybe like five years ago or something but before that it was just this magical thing where there was this crazy demo this crazy song on that comp where i was like what is this i love this you know
1: yeah, that's that's one of my favorite songs off that comp. Aaron and I talk about Misfits of Ska and Misfits of Ska 2 a lot because he sees Misfits of Ska 1 as like kind of the big turning point. And for me, it was Misfits of Ska 2. Like that was the one that really did, did it for me.
2: That was my preferred one. I'm um, sorry to say.
1: I love that the Absence song is your favorite song on there too. That song's so crazy. Yeah, man. That was it was a shredder. It was so crazy. That band had three singers. I know. Link 80, when when they did the last tour with Nick, they played a show with Absence and uh Seth, the sax player, sent me pictures. It just looked like the weirdest band. It looked like corn mixed with like <laughs> come and correct, <laughs> like mixed with mustard plug. Yeah. Yeah. It's so
2: wild. I I'm I'm just opening this up again looking at the looking at that record, looking at what was on there. You know, Kimuri, I, I remember tracking that record down cuz that was amazing. Obviously Link 80, uh Pocket Lint. That was a weird one because like um that's another one of those bands that like I don't know that the band made as big a splash but those members ended up being everywhere you know uh absence yeah thumper i loved thumper i love i i
1: i tracked down that record too
0: yeah adam brings thumper up quite a bit
1: oh they're so good live i just remember just like whenever they would hit that breakdown in backstabber our whole band would be on the dance floor and we would all start hardcore dancing so ridiculous that again, you know, I got into
2: hardcore through ska because there was so much ska core stuff. Um, the hippos, I love the hippos. That was another. That was one of my favorite records. The that first one, I remember tracking that down. Um, Pot shot. I like that record too. Um, I love this Bucko Nine, but like spelled dollar and nine cents. <laughs> 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 oh, the Eclectics. The Eclectics were a big band in Chicago too. That was another another you know cast a fairly long shadow there, but. Yeah, that comp was a big deal for me.
1: Aaron's old band Flat Planet is the second to last track on that. Oh yeah, and that's Aaron singing on that track.
0: That's the only song I sing lead. On. Well, I sing part lead on some songs, but that was the only one I sing lead
1: lead on. Nice. Flat Planet was like my favorite band, like as a teenager, and they played with the hippos in a barn. <laughs> And I I think, actually, I opened that show in, like, a shitty punk band.
0: Adam and I are both from a small town called Gilroy, California. So we were his introduction to Ska, I think, because, you know, we're the local band.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
2: That's awesome. But that's the thing I think is so funny, looking back on 90s Ska, especially, was it was such a weird confluence of different things in a way that, you know, because I... After that, you know, that was my gateway. And then I got into two-tone ska. You know, I remember going to Circuit City and looking for ska. And the only thing I could find was this, you know, two-tone box set. And so it had, you know, everything. It was like all their singles or something. So, you know, that's where I got into Selector. And even Madness was on there and that kind of stuff. And then you get into traditional ska. And that was a whole other thing. I told my aunt, uh, my aunt, my aunt's awesome. She lived all over Africa for a lot of my childhood and so she would come back with like just wild stuff you know she brought me home she had done a a trip to indonesia and brought me back an anklung, which is a a, this obscure indonesian um like it's kind of like a like a tuned rattle anyway but so one time she said you know what music are you into i'm like ska and she came back with this i don't know where she found it um but it was a it was a traditional ska compilation and it was like really deep cut stuff you know i remember um I'm trying to remember who sang it um there's a song oil in my lamp um that was like a traditional ska song and uh there's a song the beatles just gotta go <laughs> um, <laughs> it, was, it, it was like it was like right when the beatles came out you know they there was it was a ska song about how lame the beatles were i'm like well i don't know that i agree with that but it's a great song and they even end the song with like you know, don't want to hold your hand. I'm like, great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I should say too, uh, that I, you know, I, I, I'm a film composer now and that was a, an important part of all this was I, I Batman 1989, the soundtrack, you've got Danny Elfman and you got Prince. And as a little kid, that was everything to me. That was huge. And I still see echoes of those two things on just about everything I do. but Elfman especially back then his scores are just dripping in brass you know there's so much brass and so i was in love with trumpet and trombone especially and so to have you know punk music that had brass was like for me that was a big deal because i could like i could find my way in you know and um and now i look at the way you know so everything from jazz to you know hip-hop to to you know metal i i got i got into all of that through scott
0: I was reading this interview that uh, you guys did a few years ago about like um, some new music, Dear Future Self, the song. Pete answered this question, but he was basically saying that it was the product of you guys trying to do a ska song.
2: Yeah, so it's weird. Pete and I have had this ongoing thing for years where he's really deeply into reggae, and I'm really deeply into reggae and traditional ska. And so we've tried just about every record to do to do a reggae or ska song and it's never really happened like the closest we came was this song hold me tight has kind of almost like a reggae tone beat i've kind of tried a bunch i've tried to throw it in there and dear future self kind of touches on it but it, you know it doesn't really go there but that's the thing that's funny is i think pete's a lot more into like dance hall um and more and, and that kind of stuff and i'm more into like you know old you know old reggae and and ska and stuff so we always kind of try but it's like we're we're both in the in the ballpark but we're on completely different ends so it doesn't really work but do you have a hard
0: time trying to make these things fit with what basically work as a fallout boy song
2: yeah yeah i mean frankly the weird thing about fallout boy is that we all have such different musical backgrounds and so it it's really difficult trying to get everybody to meet up um and try and find something that that we can all do together and i think that's been the challenge that guides the music more than anything is like what can we all what do we all feel comfortable playing at the same time because you know like i said you know, you were asking about drums as a drummer and even as a writer a lot of times i think in terms of like a ska drummer you know that's still kind of the way that my brain works and i'll write these things and assume that that you know and 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 send that to andy andy's a shredder man he's a true he's a tremendous drummer But he feels metal and hardcore. Like, he played for Earth Crisis for a minute. Like, he's like a, he's a very serious, you know, hardcore drummer. And so, um, and metalcore and that kind of stuff. And so, they're just completely different disciplines. So, you kind of have to find something in between there. You know, because there's just, like, there's so much ghost notes and stuff in Ska and so many, you know, just parts of the cymbal that you'd never play in any other kind of, (laughs) in any other kind of. You know, rock music and stuff—just that kind of stuff. Trying to find those things uh, is is difficult. It's always going to be there for me. You know, I'm, I'm still at heart an early '90s ska guy.
0: Dude, what is the rest of Antica ska?
2: Well, it, you know, it used to be this thing that I had to like hide. <laughs> 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 Over the years, there would be parts of songs that I would kind of, I would kind of bring in, and you know, they're like, ah, that sounds too ska, you know. So it was definitely a thing that wasn't cool i mean they were hardcore kids so like i said you know when you go to hard, when you go to local ska shows or, or punk shows there would be the hardcore band and there'd be the ska band and there'd be whatever and so they were the they were the hardcore kids so they they were like you know whatever like it's fine we'll play shows with you but that's not our thing you know
0: didn't when pete started um black cards wasn't that started out to be sort of scottish
2: i think he intended it to be reggae like i said pete's very big on reggae That's, that's definitely a huge thing. And I think he tried to get black arts to be more reggae in it. And I don't know that again, you know, everybody's not all on the same page. I don't know that he could get everybody on board with exactly his idea of, of, of reggae, you know, because even he and I, like I said, you know, I'm, I'm not that up on anything post like the year 2000, you know, (laughs) like, like I don't really, you know, reggae to me is, is this, I'm obsessed with a, you know, an era, but um, he, He's very
0: ongoing in it. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, for me, yeah, I agree. I like old reggae and I like, uh, you know, roots reggae. I'm not too much into reggae that gets outside of Jamaica. Whereas ska, I love the way the the music has evolved in all these different forms. But yeah, with reggae, and not, not so much.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing against it. I mean, it's amazing. Really neat stuff. It's just like... There's also the thing, you know, it, frankly, you know, you, you hit your 30s and there's there's brain chemistry at play where your brain stops being excited about new music. And uh, so you'll hear something, you'd be like, yeah, that's cool. But it's like this objective, you know, almost uh, scholarly thing where you're like, I appreciate that. It's not the same thing as like when
0: you're, when you know, you're- where it consumes your whole body and your, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like
2: a physiological response. We're like, oh my God. Like, I remember, <laughs> it. I remember. Uh, The first time I heard Goldfinger's record Hang Ups, the very, very beginning of Superman. Right. And it's so up, it's so busy, you know, Uh, and there's that fast, you know, drum count in at the beginning. And I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard ever. You know, and when you're, when you're a kid, you know, it's just like, it's just, there's nothing like that. And in retrospect, I'm like, I think that's, you know, obviously that song will always mean something to me in that specific way but i wonder if that's just like that must be what everyone feels when they hear their their first favorite thing you know
0: i remember when you know a skink and pickle was such a big band for me in the when i was first getting into the music and i would go see them play and they in the early years they used to open with this instrumental song road, road zombie or something i can't remember its name it's the instrumental track that's on Scott Funk rusta punk and hearing that song live gave me chills in a way that I cannot explain or even compare to any other live experience I've ever had. And I I'm sure it had to do with my age and just like how I my exposure to this music and my exposure to their performance, you know, being so early and critical to me. But not the best song in the world, but in my <laughs> my my body reaction to it was like as though it was No, I mean it's a big thing. Skating Pickle's a huge thing too my, my sister used to work
2: at um sony and then at bmg um she was like a radio rep and so she would get all these promo cds and they were all sitting in this like the ones that she didn't want were all sitting in this box in the in the basement and i remember finding the green album in there and i was like can i can i take this and she's like i don't know sure whatever and i you know i, I was obsessed with it i mean that 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 record and that's another thing too is that record you know, it's it's all these covers, so that's how I heard, you know, um, Gorilla Biscuits, and how I, you know, got into Oingo Boingo and that kind of stuff was because of the covers on
0: that record. I actually like Green Album their best because I feel like they didn't do a great job with recording themselves until that album. That the album is recorded really well. The rest of them have problems with their recordings, especially having been a fan of them as a live band and comparing the experience of seeing them live to what the song sounded like in the recordings. I thought Green Album was like, okay.
2: Yeah. It sounds really good. And those songs, the the songs on there, the, the non-cover songs are like my favorite Skankabit songs for sure. Like My Hair. I love that song. You know, I was obsessed with that record when I started learning bass, you know, I, I would sit there forever. Like, Boom, da, da, da. <laughs> My fingers would be bleeding, you know.
1: Are you aware of any of the the current? Because there's kind of been a resurgence of newer ska bands. Are you aware of? Oh, tell me. There's a band called Cat Bite that I think you would really love. Awesome. They have a very like um power pop, uh, more traditional ska sound, but but like still kind of punky. Cool. Kind of like garage rock more than punk. Yeah. Yeah. They're from Philadelphia. They're awesome. Awesome. And then there's a band from New Orleans called Bad Operation. Awesome. That's so sick. Check them out.
2: You know, it's funny. I was thinking about in the, in the era and, you know, trying to go to, you know, Best Buy and stuff before I was really armed with the idea that there were, you know, smaller record stores and punk rock, you know, distros and things trying to, uh, trying to find Scott at, you know, the big chain store. And I would just buy anything, anything that I knew to be Scott or Scott adjacent, you know? So like, I'm not a I'm not a Christian person, and I bought a lot of Christian ska because that was in the that was in the stores, you know. And I was like, this isn't my thing, but I gave, at least there's a at least there's a saxophone, you
1: know, whatever. Which Christian ska albums did you pick up?
2: Uh, I got there was a Supertones record that I found, and uh, Fire and Frenzy. I still I was like, this is cool. I'm happy with this. This is a good good purchase. But but you know, I had, I had seen that it was a Christian record, and I'm like, I don't know, but I loved the the brass and everything, and, and the
1: and the songs are rad. So whatever. I know a lot of people point to like Mephiscopheles as being the the opposite. Oh my God, I forgot to mention Mephiscopheles. Yeah, I, the people point to that band as like the opposite of Christian ska, but I'm going to lobby and say it's the Blue Meanies. The Blue Meanies are terrifying. Blue Meanies, well, especially when they would play. And
2: so there was, a, um, there was also a public access. There was a lot of public access stuff in Chicago that, that did a lot of ska. I remember seeing the Blue Meanies on it might've been like the other side with Ken Motte. It was a local show and they played and they all, they all wore um, pantyhose on their heads and they looked just terrifying, like so threatening, you know, and the music was so dark and crazy, the full throttle. I mean, that record is just ridiculous. Um, what's the song? Smash the Magnavox. Oh my God. Like when the, when the, when everything starts,
1: you're like yeah that horn part's insane
0: oh so good
2: and how fast everyone in that band is at playing that part i was like this is incredible this is the coolest thing i've ever heard and like terrifying <laughs>
1: you know like just overwhelming i used to just find the blue meanies terrifying i remember loading out at fireside pole and billy spunk was holding the door and he was like hi adam and it just scared scared the shit out of me <laughs> And, I, and also I was just like, how does Billy know my name? Like, what's going on? His speaking voice
2: was always so threatening, too, because like he because like it sounds like he sings, you know, and you're like, yeah, you're like, oh, my God, like you're you're the thing. They were so good. I mean, that is, it's interesting. I think about that period and I actually, you know, I, I've mentioned them and Hot Stove Jimmy a couple of times because I thought it was so interesting that Chicago had such a decidedly kind of like weird tech hardcore ska thing you know we had these, these ska bands that were like kind of very you know musical and um weird you know and uh and i thought that was kind of cool that was like our little stamp on it well not ours i was just at the show we're one you know but
1: you're part of Chicago,
2: come on. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm from there, so. But I thought it was a cool thing that that was, like, part of our sound, you know, that we kind of had a little bit of a sound in that we had these bands that were loud and scary and weird and had, you know, like Hot Stove Jimmy, um, that second record, the, when it starts off with the, you know, there's, like, I think five horn players in that band at one point, and it's just, like, the loudest thing, you know, just... <laughs>
0: Okay, I, I want to circle way back to the beginning because I didn't get to ask you this. So, beginning of the pandemic, you recorded yourself playing, or you recorded "Sellout." Now, so that what was the reason behind that? Was your chosen song is because you knew that song on trombone? Yeah, it was like the first song I learned on trombone
2: in the era where I was trying to do ska bands, you know, in high school, whatever, uh, junior high, whatever it was. I don't really remember, but I remember taking. I did like three weeks of trombone lessons, you know, with a rented trombone that smelled terrible and so i hadn't touched a trombone in in years and years and years and then as i've been scoring film stuff i did this one film where they specifically requested all instruments had to be played by me and you know the 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 edict being that you would probably just play guitar and the, and then maybe synthesizer or something like that well then the filmmaker was like after I started turning stuff in, they go, Yeah, I mean, these, these, I want more strings, but these kind of sound fake. And I'm like, Yeah, well, there's a reason for that, actually. But um, I got a violin and I've had a trumpet for years and I kind of layered with those things and they went for it. And I was like, Really? Like, I don't know what I'm doing at all. You that no one's complaining? Okay, cool. And I got so bold, you know, after that, I was like, Screw it. I'm going to get, I'm going to trombone, you know. So, uh, so that was like, day one of trombone, you know, uh, in, in my adult life, you know, <laughs> I was picking up a trombone again. And, you know, I don't remember, I didn't remember how to, how to grease it or anything. It was just kind of like, you know, <laughs> just seeing if I could make noise out of it.
0: The slide of the trombone was like the only real giveaway that it wasn't the real big fish. And then probably halfway through it, I was like, that's not Aaron Barrett. I don't think
1: like, but at first I didn't notice that it wasn't Aaron Barrett. I thought you were just playing over the recording. That's
2: great to hear. I I was, uh, I was a big fan of, I mean, I am a fan of all that stuff and, you know, and trombone was such a, such a wonderful thing to me. You know, I, I, I've always loved trombone since I was a little kid. And uh, like I said, you know, Danny Elfman that Batman score, when the trombones really kick in, it's like, it just hits you in the face. And so for punk rock to do that, I was like, yeah, you know, Please. And, you know, back to Rancid, um, there is a version of I Want a Riot that was in the Beavis and Butthead movie, Beavis and Butthead soundtrack. And um, I think it was with the Stubborn All-Stars, like they did the, they did the brass and the trombone solo on there. I don't know what it is, but that was like, that was the coolest thing in the universe to me. And so, you know, that was like my dream was to play like that. And I, I still can't. There's just like these little things that who, I, don't, I don't even know who it was. I don't even know who played that solo. But I was like, this is the coolest, you know.
1: What are the chances of you guys putting a, a trombone in a road case so that if you guys cross paths at a festival or something with real big fish, you can jump up and I mean, I know you're kind of shy, but I love the idea of you just walking out on stage and just playing that song with them and just leaving.
2: I would kill. I mean, that'd be awesome. I'd love to do it. I I don't know. I mean, trombones take up a lot of space. It's a lot easier to to carry around my trumpet.
1: In the post
0: COVID world, this has to happen.
2: Yeah, I mean that'd be neat. As you noted, I'd probably be pretty scared. I'm always more scared of that stuff because you know you're in somebody else's house. You're in somebody else's. You're on somebody else's stage. If you if you blow it, it's you ruin someone else's show. You know, it's it's such a scary thing to me. But yeah, I mean that'd be awesome. The band toured with Lesson Jake early on and roger had found out that i was a big ska fan and that i was i was pretty big less than jake fan you know and uh and he had he had heard that you know he's like well what's your song I'm like automatic that was my jam man i love that song and one night um we were at i think it was irving plaza and the way that irving plaza you go up these stairs like along the stage so like if you're if you're standing on the stage and playing you can see all the people that are going up and down you know into the backstage, and. They were starting automatic and I was walking by and Roger was on that side of the stage and he, and he just looks at me and he's like, and he hands it to me, hands me his bass. And I was like, what, what? Uh, and I hadn't played the song in, you know, in years and, but I did used to know it. Um, and so I'm trying to remember the song, but also, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, but I'm incredibly short and, and less than Jake are incredibly tall. So Roger, you know, and he's, and he slings it down low too. so. I I'm trying to like hold the bass up with my knee while I'm trying to remember how to play the part, you know? And uh I, but he let, they let me play the song and it was, it was terrifying. It was so, so scary. You know?
1: So the big tour you guys were going to do Weezer and Green Day, right? Mm-hmm. And then the interrupters were going to be your opener. I was really excited that you guys were going to have a, a ska band as your opener. Me too. That wasn't my, that wasn't something that, that that was suggested to me. I'm like, yeah,
2: of course, that's awesome. It, it's funny. I'm amazed that we got that tour together. And the only reason I think we did is because all three of our, all three of the headlining bands are cool with each other. So we were able to like, you know, it, there wasn't a lot of ego, you know, pushing each other around, but it's amazing how many moving parts there are um trying to get that to happen so so when that was the the opener that was agreed on i was like yeah sweet let's do it there's a song on that there's a um uh was it rude boy in a penitentiary that song has a brass section in it and i and i was like oh yeah i should learn that so i don't know i don't know if i i I, i've never i've never met them i don't know anything i don't know if they would be down but maybe i could try and bring my trombone on, on tour
1: I want a whole Patrick Stump just ska EP. Like, come on, dude. That's the thing that's. Fun. I would totally,
2: you know. It's. I did a solo record a bunch of years ago, and it's weird because I, I'm. I'm happy about it. Like, I, I like what I did, but there's a there's an essential part of it which is that like I never really wanted to be a singer, and so like I look back on that record and I'm like, this is great, but it's not really. I don't really want to. You know, I don't have a purpose for a solo record. I don't really have a world that I want to like i don't even write the lyrics you know sometimes it feels weird like i i i feel like um because you know i'm pretty i'm pretty obsessive about ska from from an era but then you know this is the first time i've probably ever gotten to talk about it you know it just never comes up and so part of me is like it would feel contextually almost like um like uh I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but like, I don't, I'm not sure it would be so accepted, you know, like, like, yeah, I've got a ska record. It's like, yeah, sure. You know, like whatever. I'd just put
1: it out under a, a fake name and then just let it, let people find out that I could do that. I might do. I think that would be amazing, but
2: I have written a lot of ska stuff. I mean, that's, that's, I have a, I have a folder.
1: I mean, I'll take an, I'll take an instrumental ska album, man. So you have a whole folder, right? Yeah, I have
2: a whole folder of, of ska music that I've written, but I, I, you know, I don't know if it'll ever see the light of day. Cause you know, there's also like, I wrote this one song and I was like, I was like, yeah, I like this a lot. And then I was uh, shuffling through songs and I was like, that sounds way too much like this one. Uh, it was a stubborn all-star song. I'm like, ah, never mind. You know? <laughs> so sometimes that happens too, where you, you just kind of like, I was playing and I'm like, I love this song. I'm like, Oh no, I, you are writing a song that you like, that you are, that already
1: exists that you enjoy. <laughs> yeah. I can see that. But I mean, People are always saying they want the fourth wave. Patrick, what if the fourth wave is in that binder? I I guess. I don't
2: know.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you haven't already, subscribe to my newsletter at aaronkarns.substack.com. You will get episodes of the In Defense of Ska podcast, and other content sent directly to your inbox. If you would like to pre-order my book, In Defense of Ska, go to clashbooks.com. It releases on May 4th, 2021. On that note, we leave you by saying Ska now more than ever. Thank you.